David's response is, I will not accept this as a gift because I will not offer anything to God that does not cost me anything. Because I will sacrifice what I give to God. What I give to him must cost me something because his mercies are so great. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. Father God, uh, I just want to come to you tonight before you and just surrender uh, what we're about to experience. Uh, I'm so thankful uh, for the end of this book and for the summation of it. And uh, God, I'm, I'm so glad the story that you tell, that you use real people and real history to get a point across um, and point us in your direction. Help us to know you, help us to know your plan, and help us to see salvation. And God, I just ask that you would open our hearts, open our minds, give us ears to hear and eyes to see as we dig into the scriptures tonight. And uh, just be with us, have your spirit with us, and help us see things with new eyes. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're, we're finishing up 2 Samuel and coming to a close on David's life. We will experience a little bit more of David's life in the very early parts of 1 Kings, but uh, even as chapter 23 starts, you see David's last words, which is really the summation of these two books, First and 2 Samuel. It's about getting to David and seeing David's life. So let's dig into it. David's last words in chapter 23. Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, son of Jesse, thus says the man raised up on high. The anointed of God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. This is how David describes himself at the end. Son of Jesse, he never forgets where he came from. He never forgets that he started out as just a shepherd boy from a family that didn't have a whole lot. And that's something that he points out with his last words. He doesn't exalt himself over Israel 
He instead humbles, humbles himself and remembers his beginnings as the son of Jesse. What an interesting contrast between David and Saul. David remembers where he came from. He remembers the humbleness of his beginnings. He knows that he was only the king of Israel because God placed him there. He realizes that without God, he would have just been a shepherd, and he would have been happy doing that. Where Saul took it upon himself, once God placed him in a position of king of Israel, he acted like he earned it, like it was his, like he deserved it. And he didn't want God to take it away from him. David was always humble, and he recognized that God was the one who put him in that position, that he was nothing other than what God made him. And he gives the credit where credit is due. He calls himself the anointed of God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. How wonderful it is that he is so intimately aware of the Spirit of God. He's so aware that God is speaking through him and utilizing him. And he says, The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure for this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? And so even recognizing his own imperfection and the lack of faith within his own house, he understands that his heart has allowed God to give him salvation. His humility, his faith, and God is his salvation, and that God's commitment to David for an everlasting kingdom will come through because of who God is, not because of who David is. But the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. And so David has a little poem as his last words. And then it goes into something interesting. You may have a heading in your Bible that says David's mighty men, because this is what is going to be talked about for pretty much the rest of this chapter. Those who David surrounded himself with, they became known as the mighty men, these incredible warriors who had incredible feats for the nation of Israel because of how God protected them. But the interesting thing about these men is they didn't start out so mighty. You might remember when David was hiding in the wilderness and running from Saul back in 1 Samuel that these guys were the nervous ones, the ones in debt, and the ones who were bitter. They didn't come at David with all kinds of strength. But because of being around David, someone who was a man after God's own heart, they became strengthened by the knowledge of who God is. And this is who they became after being around someone like David for so long. 
They didn't start out that way. Verse 8, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashabeth, the Tachamite. Chief among the captains, he was called Adino the Esnite because he had killed 800 men at one time. So that's number one of the, the mighty men. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo the Ahahite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel had retreated. He arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand struck to the sword, stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder. So the second guy is someone who fought so intensely and so hard for so long that his hand became stiffened and stuck to the sword that he was killing people with. This is that guy, and he was one of three major followers of David, one of three mighty men of David. I want to point that out because, interestingly, David had a pack of followers who became really close to him and were a part of his reign and even before his reign, just following him, in his life. And out of those men, three were in his innermost circle and were a part of even more battles. That should be very interesting because Jesus had a band of followers, 12 disciples, and three of whom were in his innermost circle, Peter, James, and John. And those three experienced things that the other 12 did not. The Lord brought about great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder. And after him was Shema, the son of Aji, the Hararite. The Philistines had gathered into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought a great victory. When three of the of the 30 chief men went down at harvest time and came to David, the cave of Adullam, and the troop of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines and then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. So let me explain that story a little bit about what's going on. These guys are at war. They're in battle. David is remembering a moment in his history, a good memory, the water that he drank from this well in Bethlehem that was glorious and beautiful, and it was the best water he ever had. And he says to his men, how wonderful would it be to drink from that well again, the place where he was born, in Bethlehem. And so his three closest, his three closest generals, the three of the mighty men, say, let's go serve the king and give him what he wants. And so they go and fight their way to that well to get David a cup of water and fight their way back out 
just to give David this one little wish that he had, a dream that he had about a memory from this well in Bethlehem. David takes the water and pours it out on the ground and refuses to drink it. And from our culture, we might look at that and say, well, that's rude because this was a gift to you. Why are you doing this? But who did David pour it out to? God. He poured it out to the Lord as a drink offering for God. He basically states that what these three men did, risking their lives for the sake of a beautiful memory that David had, was something that he wasn't worthy of. But who is worthy of that sacrifice? God. And so that's what that story is. And that's a summation of the the three mighty men, the three closest to David. And then we get some honorable mentions. Now, Abishai, the brother of Joab, son of Zeroiah, was chief of another three. He lifted his spear against the 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. He was not the most honored of the three, therefore he became their captain. However, he did not attain the first three. So he wasn't a part of that innermost circle, but he's pretty close. Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of valiant men from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He had also gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day, and he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with a staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, wrestled the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did and won a name among the three mighty men. He was more honored than the thirty, but he did not attain to the first three. And David appointed him over his guard. Azahel, the brother of Joab, son of, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo, of Bethlehem, Shema, the Herodite, Elika, the Herodite, Helez, the Pelite, Ira, the son of Ikesh, the, Tec- the Tekoite, uh, Abiezar, the Anathathite, Mabunai, the Hushathite, Zalman, the Ahahite, Maharai, the Natophathite, Heleb, the son of Baana, from Gibeah, the children of Benjamin, Benaiah, the Pirathoite, Hidai, from the brooks of Gash, Abai Elban, the Arbathite, Asmaveth, the Barhuite. You get this, right? This is a whole bunch of names that are difficult to pronounce from places that are difficult to pronounce um, as you go through. And then finally, as you go down to verses 38 and 39, um, you say Ira the Ithrite, Garib the Ithrite, and then verse 39, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. So the last one mentioned is Uriah, the one that David had killed, one of David's mighty men. And it says there's 37, but constantly throughout those passages, it said it was mentioning of the 30. Well, why is that? It's probably because, like Uriah, some of these men died in battle and then were replaced. But there were 30 in total. Okay. Chapter 24, the last chapter of Second Samuel. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, commander of the army who was with him, 
Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people, that I may know the number of the people. So David is looking to have a census. He wants to know how big his army is. He wants to know how many fighting men are in Israel. This is because he desires to know how much power he has. Because that's how you would know how big is your army, how many men of fighting age do you have, how many men can you call on to go fight wars. This is a pride move by David. He wants to know exactly how powerful he is as he's expanded the kingdom. And Joab said to the king, No, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are. And may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king desire this thing? This is now we've we've talked about Joab a lot. Joab is a bloodthirsty guy. He may be very loyal to David, and he's gone out of his way to do things for David that David didn't want him to do for David's sake, such as kill Absalom. But Joab is telling David this is a bad idea. So you know that this isn't God's idea. If Joab's on the page of, David, maybe you should rethink this. This is probably a moment that David is failing. If even Joab, this kind of bloodthirsty zealot, is saying, this is a little too much, this is probably a bad idea. Verse 4, Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the people of the king to count the people of Israel. So David did it anyway. And they crossed over the Jordan and camped in Aroer, on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad, the town Jazer. Then they came to Gilead in the land of Tatim, Hodshai. They came to Dan, John, and around to Sidon. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre, and all the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Canaanites, they, they went out to, the south, to, the, to south of Judah as far as Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem. And at the end of nine months and twenty days, then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. So you're looking at about 1.3 million military-aged strong men between Israel and the tribe of Judah. David hears this number, and this is what happens next. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, Take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. He recognizes what he did. God has provided for David all along. David's very first battle was Goliath. David mentioned before he fought Goliath how God protected him in the fields as he watched over the sheep against lions and bears. God has continually given David success over armies that were larger than him, by enemies that were larger than him, and armies that were larger than Israel. 
God has continually given David these successes and shown that God is bigger than the obstacles facing him. And David turns that around on its head, and now he wants to know how powerful he is and how many men he has in his army as a show of strength to the world instead of humility before God, because God is the one that gave him the success, not how many men were fighting in the wars. And so when he hears the number, maybe he recognizes the amount of pride and what was leading him to do this census. And he gets the spirit of God and he immediately regrets what he did. And he repents and he talks to God and he prays. Now, in my conversations with A, myself, and everyone else that I know, when we are confronted with our sin or our shortcomings before God, rarely, myself included, do we immediately repent and pray. Normally, we give excuses and try to justify what we've done. David in here sets a really good example in that as soon as he becomes aware, he doesn't try to justify, he doesn't try to make excuses, he doesn't try to explain away what he did was wrong. He hears the number, is convicted, and immediately turns his heart around. And that's a good example. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus the Lord says, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of plague in your land? Now consider and see what I should take back to him who sent me. So apparently... This prophet has a message from God that God is going to punish the sin of Israel that started with David and their pride. And he offers three options for David. Now, why does God do this? I don't know. The truth of the matter is, we don't know who is going to be punished or why they're going to be punished or what was going on in the hearts of, the, of the, those who die during this time, what was in their hearts, what they were doing. I have no idea. I do know that consistently in the Old Testament, there is a lot of times where members of the nation of Israel fall into the pagan worship of the surrounding communities, often involving child sacrifice, and often those people are judged. I don't know if that's the case here. It's not mentioned. I'm just giving you some context for how God has judged elsewhere in the Old Testament. Which part? The way that, that God has judged elsewhere in the Old Testament. So it may, not be, it may not be related to this specific passage, but it does give you some idea of how God has judged in the past. So just because we see God judging without context doesn't mean that the judgment wasn't deserved, is the point. And so David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. This is David's response. After hearing this, and hearing that God is going to judge, David 
doesn't complain. So even though we don't understand most of the context as to why God is passing out these judgments, we know that David is not upset about the idea of God judging. So David must have some understanding of what was earned by the nation of Israel. But what he does say is that God's mercies are great. In, his, in the response that the prophet gives him, David calls God's mercy great when he hears the judgment that God is going to pass. And what David asks for is option one or option three, because David doesn't want to be chased by his enemies and fall at the hands of man. He wants to be judged directly by God. That's interesting. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time. So three-day plague, and from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. So out of 1.3 million, 70,000 had passed away at this plague. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it is enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Now David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these, these sheep, what, the, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and my father's house. So David, upon hearing this, and he sees the threshing floor, he speaks to God and he says, I have sinned. I'm the leader of Israel. Bring down the judgment on me and stop judging the rest of Israel. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of God, went up to the Lord, command, uh, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Aruna went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Aruna said, Why has my servant, the Lord King, come to his servant? Or why has my Lord, the King, come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Aruna said to David, Let my Lord, the King, take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are the oxen for burnt sacrifice, and the threshing implements, and the yokes, and the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. God has instructed David to buy this threshing floor. He goes to do that. Aruna has now said to David, oh no, you don't have to buy it. In fact, here's all this stuff to do the sacrifices and, and do whatever you need. Take, take this plot of land. That plot of land is now the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So if you ever if you Google a picture of Jerusalem, you will see the Temple Temple Mount. And that golden dome where the Dome of the Rock sits, that's the Temple Mount. And there's actually still, in places on the Temple Mount, you can see carved into the stone on top of the Temple Mount, you can see evidence of the threshing that was done on top of the Temple Mount, indicating that it really was the threshing floor that David bought the Temple Mount. David's response to Aruna when he says, just take it, you're the king. You can have it. In fact, I'll give you oxen and whatever you need. Because David's buying the spot where the temple will stand to build an altar to God. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you 
Then the king said to Aruna, no. He says, no, I will not accept this as a gift. But I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David's response is, I will not accept this as a gift because I will not offer anything to God that does not cost me anything. I will sacrifice what I give to God. What I give to him must cost me something because his mercies are so great. I do think that's an interesting way to look at life and to look at faith. How often are we willing to sacrifice of ourselves for our faith? To believe deeper, to advance the gospel, to make a difference in our community. Are we willing to sacrifice of our lives, of our time, of our finances? What are we willing to do that compromises our flesh? That gives us, makes us sacrifice a little bit of what we want for the sake of the kingdom. David was unwilling to do anything less. And I think that that's a pretty beautiful picture. And that's how the chapter closes. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. The first offering on the Temple Mount were eventually the tabernacle and then the temple will be built. So that's 2 Samuel. And if you look at the 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 overarching story of first and second Samuel and David's life, you get a picture that is unbelievable. Right? You see a prophet. A prophet has entered, and he's a great prophet. His name is Samuel. And Samuel is a prophet at a time where Israel is under tyranny. And Samuel confronts that tyrant, Saul, and tells him everything he did wrong. And in the meantime, he gets confirmation from God who the real king of Israel is. And he anoints David king over Israel, a young shepherd who becomes king. And then the story fades away from Samuel and focuses on David. And David spends a lot of time waiting for the appropriate time for this anointing to come into place. He's anointed king of Israel, but we spend a whole lot of time reading about David when he's not the king. And he waits for his time. And he waits until he's 30 years old. And when he's 30 years old, he becomes king of Israel. But during his reign, he gets rejected by Israel for a substitution, a cheap imitation of David and Absalom. And the people follow Absalom for a short while after they reject David. And David leaves. And he leaves during the reign of Absalom, this cheap imitation of the king. He's handsome as can be and charming as can be. And the people fall for it, hook, line, and sinker. But eventually, David returns and comes back to the throne. 
That's the trajectory of David's life. And it sounds really familiar. Interestingly, David is the one through whom the Messiah will come. Messiah, born from David's line, calls himself the Good Shepherd. And the Bible refers to him as the King of Kings. He spends a lot of time gathering followers. He has three that are really close to him. And he spends a lot of time doing this. But then at 30 years old, he brings that ministry public. And he has that ministry for a little while. But then he's rejected. And he's killed. In the book of Revelation, in Daniel and Isaiah, and Ezekiel, Zechariah, Joel, and several other books tell us about the return of Jesus. The book of Acts tells us that he will return in the same manner that he left. But before he does, there will be a cheap imitation, someone who is a false Christ that people will follow, probably going to be handsome, and charming as can be, but eventually he will return and become the king of kings. David's life trajectory, boiled down to its simplest plot points, happened to be a foreshadowing of Jesus. But we also find out a lot about David's failures, because Jesus is better than David. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is God and man. And Jesus doesn't have the imperfections that David had. And because he doesn't have the imperfections that David had, because he was able to lead a sinless life, he can offer himself as a sacrifice for us. David's life ends with the first sacrifice on the Temple Mount. Jesus' life ends with the ultimate sacrifice so that we can be reconciled with God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this, these books. Thank you for the history that you wrote down and for the prophetic foreshadowing that it entails. That we know that Christ's sacrifice can reconcile us with you, that we can put on his righteousness so that we can be in direct contact with you and be vessels of the Holy Spirit. God, thank you that the fulfillment and the promises and the prophecies and the foreshadowing that was done and taken care of in Christ's first coming, in Jesus's first coming, are so clear and so fulfilled completely that we can have, without a doubt, belief in the ultimate fulfillment and refreshing and revitalizing and reconciliation with the second coming, that we know that he's coming and everything will be healed when the governments truly do stand at his feet because he is the king of kings. And we look forward to that day and I hope that this study has pointed out even more how clear your plan is and how much you love us because you desperately want us to know how long you've been working to save us. Help us accept that and be willing to lay down 
our lives to resist our flesh for the sake of the kingdom, much like David did, would do nothing in offering to you something that wouldn't cost him in some way. Pray that we can learn from that. In Jesus' name, amen.